I got the opportunity to visit an old black Baptist church building in downtown Fort Worth a few years back. And it was uh, one of the oldest black congregations in Fort Worth. And this building was just rich with history. One particular part being because that uh, group uh, was not allowed to swim in public pools, they built a pool to be a missional endeavor to reach all of the blacks that are in the neighborhoods that say, hey, you can't swim there, you can swim here. You can swim here, you can be with us. And so just rich with history. But as I, I, I kind of went around the rooms, I saw there's this one room and, and there was this wall with pictures. And it's portraits of men, probably nine in a row. And uh, it was an interesting room, it was kept up, but you know, it, it looked like the 80s, smelled like the 80s. Uh, but it, it had the pictures, and then underneath it had a little little piece of paper that had the years of service, the name of that pastor, that's who it was, the years of their service and their achievements, and that's what it wasn't like nine in a row. Um, a little side note is, for them, this building was beautiful, rich in history, such a good gift at the beginning, but became, I think, an, an idol, like so many buildings do for churches, and that I say that because the major accomplishments, the achievements, really the only achievements on those pieces of paper underneath that person's picture, whether you serve for six months or 20 years, the achievement was connected to the building. This person put in pews in 1984. This person re-renovated uh, this left wing in the uh, 66. It's like, wait, this is what they're known? The, these shepherds, these pastors, these overseers, that, that is their achievement. That's their record and so it was sad when I was thinking about that but I was also thinking about this week as we look at judges again of seeing kind of the record and the history of past leaders and what have they done what are their achievements what are their years of service what's their name that that's how it goes and so in judges this morning we're, we're kind of at that room again to stop for a second and see all right here's a summary of some of these leaders so I want you to go back with me a little bit Saul started in chapter 13, verse 1, but I want you to go back to 12, verse 8. Chapter 12, verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, grab one underneath you, around you. I'd love for you to look out with me. If you don't have a Bible at your house, take it with you. Thank the Lord for that gift as well. It's yours. Chapter 12, verse 8. <clears throat> Ibsen, who was from Bethlehem, judged Israel after Jephthah and had 30 sons. He gave his 30 daughters in marriage to men outside the tribe and brought back 30 wives for his son from outside the tribe. Ibsen judged Israel seven years. And when he died, he was buried in Bethlehem. Elon, who was from Zebulun, judged Israel after Ibsen. He judged Israel 10 years. And when he died, he was buried in Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After Elon, Abdon, son of Hillel, who was Pirathon, from Pirathon, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Abdon judged Israel eight years. When he died, he was buried in Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. So we've got this quick portrait of their years, their name, and their achievements. But but I, if you haven't seen this, this whole 
thing, I want you to make explicit two things this morning. Is when it says they're doing evil in the Lord's sight, you have to make sense of what he's actually saying. And so I want to make this very clear. Come back. I think I came to it earlier, but I want to come back to it. I want you to see, because it's the transition from the snapshot of these three, three people that served as judges, then into Samson. Leviticus 18 says this. So this is Leviticus. This is back before. <clears throat> they're here. This is when God has given the law to Moses. So now this is, they know how they're going to live with God, with one another, and to the nations. Leviticus 18, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, I, I am the Lord your God. Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live, or follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You must not follow there customs you are to practice my ordinances and you are to keep my statutes by following them i am the lord your god keep my statutes and ordinances a person will live if he does them and if you have not heard it i'll say it again i am the lord and then it, that continues through that rest of that chapter getting very specific in what are the pagan practices. And it's usually around sex and kids and money and conflict and how to engage with one another and other nations. But you've got first, quickly, this portrait. But what is on this guy's one portrait, his one achievement? Well, one guy has nothing, right? Elon in the middle, no X, no SpaceX, nothing, right? Just nothing, no achievements, this guy. Other guy, he's, he sounds like a king. He's got 40 sons, he's got 30 grandsons, and he puts them on donkeys. That's a very, in that culture, a sign of a kingship, of like, hey, we're in peacetime, we ride on donkeys, we've got this. But the first person, what's, what's his one achievement? He had a lot of kids and he married them off to the tribes around them. In Leviticus 18, that is explicitly, clearly restricted. Why? Because, not, not, not race, I always have to say this, but not race, not ethnicity, worship. When your kids marry someone who doesn't worship the God you worship and they worship, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So they no, no, no. It's going to do it. But this is what this guy does. Why? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. You can assume political advantage, right? Think of, think of how much uh, connections and influence now when you have 30 of your kids' sons now that have wives here at your house. And so you have connections with all the clans, whoever those people are that you have those, those wives for your sons. And then also all your daughters are out there, wherever they are. And there are all those connections. So I assume there's some political game here. And then chapter 13, verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the bells. They worshipped the Asherahs. That, that's what Judges 1 and 2 made clear for us of what is evil. Evil in Judges is described repeatedly by 
worshiping God and alongside him, bells and any other God. And mixing your practices of, yeah, I worship God and follow like what he wants me to do and his ordinances, but also I, I, I listen to this God and this storm God, and he talks to me about the rain, and so I do these things so that it'll rain. And, and then the sun God, you know, there's some things that, that I think are cool I picked up and some habits, some, some way of viewing the world that the sun God really like helps me make sense of this world. So I, I got that, so I got those all mixed in. They did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They married their kids out to the pagans around them. So what's happened? The Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. 40 years. There's a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. That, that's, that's so normal for us. I just want to pause there to let that sink in. They're not far from Genesis. They're not from the far from the mandate and the understanding of where to be fruitful and multiply. They're in a culture that you're, you're blessed by God if your quiver is full of arrows. What if it's not? What does that say about you? What does it say about you and your God? His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are unable to conceive and have no children, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean. For indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair. Because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. This reminds us of Abraham and Sarah, unable to conceive. No children, no future lineage, nothing beyond them. It stops with them. And like Abraham and Sarah, an angel appears to announce God will bring life to barrenness. Now, I paused earlier because if you don't know, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is kind of the, the legal covenant treaty between God and his people and it outlines everything but at the end there's blessings and cursings blessings for obedience cursings for disobedience and curses in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy include turning off the rain and closing the womb and Ruth at the same time as the judges tells us that the land experiences a years long famine years long and now, here, at the same time as Judges, we have infertility. And so, the faithful Israelites, I would read this initially, would have been going, what's happening? Are they being cursed? Is the land cursed? Because verse 1 says they did what was evil in 
the Lord's side. So are they being cursed for their disobedience? There seems to be some clear signs there. There's a famine. There's a lack. Deuteronomy 28 says there will be a lack for anything. There will be a lack for everything. That includes kids. There are consequences for disobedience. I know you know that, but I say it around my house so many times, I thought I would say it to you again. We all need to hear it. The reminder, there are consequences for disobedience, but is the Bible saying that your famine and your infertility is because of your disobedience? Maybe. Maybe. Honestly, maybe. I mean, consider pain and wounds and suffering in your life. Now think about how you interpret that, how you make sense of that. Some of us are so reticent to put everything in the first category of we suffered unjustly that we never consider that maybe we are suffering justly. Reaping the consequences of our own choices, worship, habits. Because what you behold, you become. And when you behold false gods, you become less human, less loving, less gracious, less truthful, less steadfast, less pure. But there's a real category of unjustly. Some of you guys have been horrendously misused, abused, and mistreated at the hands of other people. Most often men. The hands of men. Some of us have suffered justly, like I said, reaping those consequences. But there's also for from Manoah's wife at the least. And then we begin to see with Job and others that there's this other category of mysterious. That sometimes you can't point and say, my choice is equated to this consequence. It's here's this suffering and all I can make sense of, it's because this world is broken. But mysterious suffering, like physical suffering or chronic suffering that can't be resolved, can't be explained by a doctor. Chronic illness, depression, infertility. And really, no matter whether it's unjustly, justly, or mysterious, I think no matter your experience, if you're trying to wrestle with God in it, your question inevitably becomes, where are you? No matter if it's from your choices, no matter if it's from someone else's, no matter if you can't make sense of it, it's question gets to like, God, where are you? And I, I feel this. Kayla and I, we... We have one 10-year-old son right here on the front row and two 
younger boys in the back. But years ago, years ago, before them, we had six, seven years of infertility of God. Where are you? Every month, God. Where are you? We keep asking. We keep clearly saying no. What is happening? And then you get those questions too, right? You may come back to those questions of, is this my fault? Did we do something? Did I do something in my past that's affected this? Did I ruin my body back in the day? What's happening? Oh, is this because of something else? And some of you guys are very uncomfortable. Because you don't like to be uncomfortable. I'm talking about pain, and you're really uncomfortable. And I'm talking a little bit about your pain. Or at least making you have to pause for a moment this week and consider if you have any. So let's just pause and be honest. Where have you suffered? There's a lot of suffering in this book, in the book of Judges. There's a lot of sin. But I'll tell you, in our tribe, I think we talk a lot about sin. We have a robust theology of sin. We have a good fight, attack plan on how to kill sin. Uh, the sphere of dis disciplines to war off sin, the guards and protections to not even come close to potentially sinning, all that, but have maybe a weak, frail, thin theology on suffering. So let me say this, what I've said for years, minimizing sin cheapens Christ, the cross of Christ. Minimizing your sin to try to deal with it cheapens the cross of Christ. If you can minimize it so as to deal with it, then why did he die for it? But here's the other part. <clears throat> Minimizing suffering, your suffering, cheapens the comfort of Christ. Now some of you guys are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are, are you trying to get all these people to jump off into the mentality of victimhood? No, I'm not. I didn't even come close to that. I think I'm being very nuanced. So ride with me. But what I'm saying is, just like with sin, we have something to do with it. We acknowledge it. We repent and believe. Do you have something you do with your suffering? Now, it's corny, but it rhymes. It sticks with me. I think it's grief and belief. That's what the Bible says. When there's suffering, when there's loss, when there's heartache, you grieve to God and you believe. Meaning, you're not turning from sin. That's repentance. You're not turning from idolatry. That's repentance. 
you're, you're grieving, you're turning your emotions, your pain, your loss, your questions, like Psalm 13, to the Lord. Instead of running just the thoughts in your mind, worrying or whatever, you take your grief, your loss, your pain to Him. Grieve and trust. God, where are you? Well, for this gal, the angel of God shows up and tells her this is what's about to happen. And she's ecstatic. There's hope. There's hope. We don't know how long her story's gone on. We don't know how long she, she's been in for a long long has she's been praying for this, but there's hope. Verse 6, Then the woman went and told her husband, A man of God came to me. How does she know that? He looked like the awe-inspiring angel of God. Okay, there's more. What does that mean? I didn't ask him where he came from. Dang it. And he didn't tell me his name. Strike two. He said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Therefore, do not drink wine or beer and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth until the day of his death. Manoah, husband, prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, let the man of God you sent come again to us and teach us what we should do for the boy who will be born. Now, you've probably heard of Nazarite vow. Uh, you've probably heard of the Church of the Nazarenes. It uh, looks like Jacob's taken that Nazarite vow. But the Nazarite vow is in Numbers 6, 1 through 8. Sorry. Numbers 6, 1 through 8 is where you find that Nazarite vow. And really, it's a dedication to the God, to God for a voluntary amount of time. And you abstain from three things. Alcohol, haircuts, and corpses. So what you stay from? Now, the person who would take this vow would take it voluntarily, simply as an act of dedication to God. But here, something different happens. <laughs> Samson doesn't volunteer. Samson doesn't say for this certain amount of time. And he doesn't say, yeah, I'm cool with all these abstentions. God says, I'm volunteering you in the womb, calling you to something big. You hear that of, what's he going to do? He's going to begin to save his people from the Philistines. You hear that hope, the anticipation. So God's volunteering him, and not for just a moment, not for just a season, not for just three years, not for six months, for life, until he dies. God says, I'm volunteering him for life. And it starts at conception, so you too, Mom. <laughs> until he's born. But that's just general good advice for moms, right? During pregnancy, stay away from bars, graveyards, and drastic haircuts, right? <laughs> stay away from them. <laughs> stay away from them. I know your, your hormones are here, but just wait. Don't get your hair cut now. Now, I know the Israelites should have eaten anything unclean, so this addition should pique your interest to say, why did, is this added? I think it's because God is showing us the spiritual state of this family and clan that it, they didn't even know what they're supposed to eat and not supposed to eat. Manoah doesn't even know how to raise this boy. And I'm going to be a little hard on him. 
commentators go back and forth, but here, here's my opinion. You have the most instructions on how to live, how to follow God, how to raise a family, how to be a tribe than any other culture on the planet at that time. And you're like, please show us how to raise this kid. What? And he keeps going, and this is why I'm a little critical, is because I, I, I don't have the best regard for his intentions. <laughs> He begins to seem to manipulate the angel and say, what this, this, this. And it seems as if from the get-go, he's off-put that the angel didn't come to him, but it came to his wife. It's like, no, 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 Lord, come back. I want to know. And then angel, tell me your name. Angel, where are you from? Angel, stay in my house. I'm going to feed you. Doesn't even know it's an angel, though. Now, they've done evil. So I'm saying I don't think he knows of God or at least it's very little and it's intermixed with the other religions and gods of the area. But the people have done evil, it says. So to be clear, they've practiced the lifestyles of the idolaters around them. They've dealt with kids and money and leadership and sex in conflict like the people around them. Do you hear me? And this is why I want to come back to my second point is why are we explicit? I want to explicitly say why are we going through this book at this moment in time is because this is our world. This is our world. Make so many connections. On this story alone, think of the, the, the amount and relevancy of infertility in the maybe your life or in your family alone. Think of the stories you know. How prevalent it is. But also think about practicing the lifestyles of the adulterers, right? Them and, and dealing as the people of God, but we deal with money and leadership and our kids like, like the nations around us, like the peoples around us. And to say it another way is they, they picked up this habit and this way of viewing the world from this storm God and then this belief and habit from this sun God and then this belief and habit from the God of the Bible. And it's like, this is, this is our worldview. This is our life. This is how we're going to structure it. Even though, with all that said, God is gracious. <laughs> Verse 9, God listened to Manoah. I, don't, I, I can't... Describe his motivation. I do think they're a little sketchy. That's my opinion. But God listens to him nonetheless. And the angel of God came again to the woman. She was sitting in the field and her husband Noah was not with her. The woman ran quickly to her husband and told him, the man who came to me the other day has just come back. So when Noah got up and followed his wife, when he came to the man, he asked, are you the man who spoke to my wife? I am, he said. Then Manoah asked, when your words come true, what will be the boy's responsibilities and work? The angel of the Lord answered Manoah, your wife needs to do everything I told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink wine or beer. She must not eat anything unclean. Your wife must do everything I've commanded her. Please stay here, Manoah told him, and we will prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to him, if I stay, I won't eat your food. There's some fellowship there. 
That's a weird thing culturally. Do you hear that? Maybe in your house that, that may be relatively normal, that someone comes over and you're like, hey, you want some food? They're like, no, nah, but you know, we can keep hanging out. You're like, okay. But if someone offers you food in this culture and you're like, no, I mean, I'll stay, but I ain't gonna eat your food. Something's off. There's some lack of desire of fellowship here. If I stay, I won't eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. And then there's the, there's the helpful answer. The parenthetical theological explanation. Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to him, what is your name so that we may honor you when your words come true? Why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord asked them. Since it is beyond understanding. So I think Manoah is trying to manipulate the angel, get him to stay, get his name. And the angel is short and sweet. Rather, the angel is short. <laughs> I am. What would the, the boy's responsibilities be? Your wife should do what I told her. Okay. <laughs> All right. Angel, are you running for governor? What, what kind of answer was that to the question? And then, no, I will not eat with you. No thanks. Really is the literal translation. No thank you. Now, I want to say again, I think, I think, so I guess I'm staying on two opinions right here. This is not often, but the other one really doesn't matter about Manoah. But this one, I, I, it does matter. I think the, Lord, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is often the incarnate, the pre-incarnate Jesus. It is Jesus in the Old Testament, showing up as a messenger to divinely relay the message of God. Why? Well, Gideon 6, that back and forth that God and the angel are so intertwined, and that happens throughout it, and then they're talking to one another, and there's times where it seems like they're both calling each other Lord. What is this? And, and it's, it's subtle and it's hidden, but you get to the New Testament, and you're like, wait, I think those are all hints of the Trinity. We got the father and then, oh, we had the son. You can disagree with this. You, you don't have to read that. You don't have to see that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus. But, but I think it's weird to argue when you see the potential beauty of Jesus showing up to announce the birth of a deliverer to a woman who can't have kids. Now, Manoah asked, how will we raise him? What do we need to prepare him for? And I love this because the angel Lord and God does this so often is when we're like yearning for the specific choice or the rules to follow or like give me the bullet list so that I can feel good about myself after God. God often doesn't honor those requests because you're asking for his gift without him and what he so often wants to give you is himself. Tim Keller puts it this way. We think we need rules like Manoah, but we need to know God. 
God does not and will not give us a guidebook for every twist and turn, every doubt and decision in our lives. He gives us something much better. He gives us himself. So in response to Manoah seeing this in verse 19, I'm not going to feed you, okay? You want to burn offering to the Lord. Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered them on a rock to the Lord who did something miraculous. While Manoah and his wife were watching, when the flame went up from the altar to the sky, the angel of the Lord went up in its flame. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell face down on the ground. The angel of the Lord did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. Boom, it hit him. What? There it is. That's something. Angel. And what's his response now? We're certainly going to die. He's not worried about the future. He's like, uh, what, how are we going to raise this kid? He's like, dead. We're going to die. He left. We're going to die because we have seen God. So he knows enough, a little bit about their tradition, or he's aware enough that, they're, they're, yeah, to see God is to die. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had intended to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering from us, and he would not have shown us all these things or spoken to us like this. He panics. She remains calm. We haven't died. If he was going to kill us, he would have already. He accepted the offering, and he told us all these things. I love this. One more. Tim Keller adds this. He says, interesting, this reminds us that faith is not the absence of thinking, but is thinking and acting on the basis of the word and promises of God. Why, why, why does she remain calm? I don't know. I can't really speak again to her motivations. It doesn't show up, but this is, this is what happens for the people of God. Is that you cannot, you cannot panic when it's going wild and crazy or when you're scared because you can think and act on the basis of the word and promises of God and not just the circumstances of your life. Now this burnt offering is not atonement. You should, should not see this as paying for their sins. A burnt offering is not atonement, it's adoration. And so at the moment of pausing and thinking about real suffering, I want to I pause and think about this. Because there, there's not an explicit rule in the New Testament that says, do this exactly. But you see that this is, this is how the people of God react. And so I want to ask you this. When God speaks to you or answers your prayers or blesses you, how do you stop and adore him? My, my thought is, I, I, would, I would think for myself and for others, sometimes we're moving so fast that we don't stop and adore. That, that we don't have like the tangible sacrifice thing that we have to do so that we don't stop and adore. We don't have something to work with our hands to make us go, okay, all right, what's this about? And who's this about?
and my affections there for him and am I, am I taking in really what, what he gave or what he did for me or what he spoke to me or how he blessed me? That adoration, burnt offering is, is what Paul picks up in Romans 12 and says you're to be a living killing, you're to be a burnt sacrifice, you're to be a sacrifice of adoration every day to the glory of God. I want you to think of maybe the other way of how can you stop and adore? How can that become a rhythm, a, a spiritual discipline, something that's not empty and hollow, a tradition with no purpose, but a real meaningful rhythm of when the Lord blesses me, just like so many things, when, the, when people come to you and ask you for help or tell you about something real and you just stop and pray for them, if that's become a rhythm for you, then, then maybe this would also become a rhythm for you or you, you stop and just adore the Lord, thank Him, praise Him, offer up that, that sacrifice of words and blessings to Him from your mouth. So the angel goes and the woman then in verse 24 gave birth to a son and named him Samson. It's sad. It's sad. Samson's sad because his name means uh, little sunny boy. Some people will call it sunny son. Because another God and its name for the sun, they ripped that from it and, and called him that to call him like like if we had a storm god named Stormy and we named your son Stormy, or if it was a storm god and his name was Stormy, we called your name Stormy or Haley or, that's terrible, Haley, that's a real name. Uh, uh, <laughs> I see <laughs> how I pronounce it, uh, Haley. Um, it'd be strange, right? This deliverer of Yahweh, you name him after a sun god. But the girl he grew and the Lord blessed them. Then the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshaw. Now Samson's going to get a lot of attention. He's, he's about a third of the book. This is the last judge. This is it. And we're going to see really personally his life. And not, not the nation, and really not repentance of the nation, but some individual stuff between him and God, some individual God delivering him, Samson, from <coughs> predicaments he puts himself in. When this last one, we pause and hear this lengthy birth announcement about this deliverer that gets a terrible name, And then his life ends tragically. And then the stories after the judge and judges only get worse. More brutal. And it leaves you longing for when will there be a king so that people will not do what's just right in their eyes, but they will maybe 
potentially, possibly do what's right in God's eyes. And so you've got this, what, longing for David, but then you get to David, and if you've been reading Samson, you're like, David's too much like Samson. Like, he's too much like Samson. This can't be it. This can't be the king, right? This one can't, he's great, some good stuff. This is too much like Samson. And then you get the root of Jesse, and you get some other things, and then you, you come... Years later. And you have an angel show up to a woman who can't have kids, not because she's older and barren, but because she's young and virgin. And tells her who he's going to be and gives him a name and tells him his name means this. It doesn't mean he's going to begin to save his people from the Philistines. It means he's going to save his people from their sins. His name's Jesus. And my, my beautiful idea is that in the Old Testament, Jesus shows up to Manoah's wife and says, you're going to have a baby who's going to deliver. And then he shows up being the greater deliverer that he spoke of. The one who then comes, born of this virgin woman, miraculously then lives so much better than Samson not stained by any any pagan practices or or confused or or dealing with money and kids and conflict and sex and women like the peoples around him but he he deals with it like a faithful loyal Israelite so much so that he is the faithful Israelite who represents not only Israel but the whole world and then sacrifices himself like this burnt offering and then like going up into the flame, he ascends to sky and cloud where he reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. And the good news is <laughs> when you really see the glory of God like Manoah, the proper response is we should die. But because of Jesus, we won't die because the Father accepted his sacrifice. So with the good news of Jesus, that gives you great space and grace to be empowered to grieve in your suffering. To not run and hide, not isolate, not throw a pity party, not, not take up or pick up a false mentality. But you have an opportunity to talk to your gracious Father who hears you and knows you and, and like Manoah, listens to you. And also the good news tells you come and dine. I don't want to get too far into this. But Jesus is not eating with Manoah until there's a sacrifice. 
The sacrifice has been made, family. You're welcome at the table of Jesus now and forever. Whether you've been involved in some of the most detestable, horrendous things that you think people would even imagine. There's grace for you. There's mercy for you. There's love for you. Jesus is so sufficient in his sacrifice and in his comfort that no matter your suffering, you can come to him. And no matter your devastating practices that have ruined your life, you can come to him. And he'll have fellowship with you. You want to say, no, thanks. Say, no, I'll stay here forever. So much so that you think this is your home. I'm going to make it my home. Here we are. So I invite you to grieve in your loss, but in your sin, you've been evaluating the evil in your life. That you repent, you turn. All with the hope for me is that we fall down on our face in worship. Like that's the end goal. For me, the end goal is not the, the actions. The end goal is your delight in Jesus. I'm going to pray to that end. Father, we ask that from you because I wholeheartedly believe you want that for us. To glory in Jesus. To see again and again and again that every leader, every human every person person that we can put up next to Jesus fails maybe gives hints of but it's not complete Jesus we thank you thank you for your grace and your mercy and your comfort and your cross in your name we pray. Amen.